0: day, I was driving with one of my friends to Taco Bell, as you do in the middle of the night, right? And we were entering the ramp down 36. I don't actually know road names, but I believe it was 36, to go back to Bethel. And as we're, like, entering onto the highway, we see the signs that say, like, wrong way! Do not enter! With, like, the bright, big, uh, red lettering on them. And I started freaking out. (laughs) And I'm not the one who was driving, but I started panicking. And I was, like, slamming on my fake break, you know, like how you do, like you pretend like you're the one driving, um, as if that's going to do anything, as if there's a break on the passenger side. And I was freaking out and I was like, oh my God, we're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. Like, what if a semi <laughs> hits us? What if we just get smashed into right now? And like, this is how we die with Taco Bell in my lap. Like, I'm just imagining the burrito, like exploding all over us. And like, that's how I die. And <laughs> then I realized that we were in fact not going the wrong way and that those signs are just really stupidly placed, and they make me think that I'm going the wrong way every single time that I'm driving. Does does that ever happen to you, or am I alone in this? (laughs)
1: Literally all the time. I always (laughs) second-guess myself.
0: Welcome to the Modern Story Podcast, episode number three. Today, we're telling stories about doubt,
2: which ties in Morgan's opening anecdote there where she was driving the right way but saw the wrong way (laughs) and started to doubt herself which I have done on so many occasions.
1: Same here. They're so confusing and I just don't even understand the point of them.
2: Sometimes we all get into our own heads a little bit and start to doubt ourselves when there's really no reason to and so that's going to relate to all three of the stories we're going to tell you today. Let's get
0: started with Kylie and her story called Two Minutes of Magic.
1: peeked behind the velvet curtains and stared at a faceless crowd sitting among a darkened arena. There were so many watchful eyes pointed towards the stage, but only four that really mattered. Bile crept its way to the back of my throat. I felt queasy just thinking about the idea of four judges staring at me on stage, critiquing my every move. I can't do it. I can't go out there, I said, shaking my head fiercely. I could feel the prick of 5,000 bobby pins trying to dig themselves further into my scalp. Sure you can. You've been waiting all year for this, my friend Leah replied smiling at me with red-stained lips. I took a deep breath. She was right. I've waited longer than all year for this. I've waited my entire life. I I wiped my sweaty palms across the pressed fabric of my hand-stitched apron and tugged on the back of my earring to make sure it was secure. If anyone on my team was going to get accused of a wardrobe malfunction, it sure wouldn't be me. I glanced around the tiny backstage wing at the rest of the girls who looked identical to me. Same black aprons, same slick-back, middle-parted bun same red lips, and wondered if they were as nervous as I was. I doubted they were. Some have been doing this since they could walk, and here I am at 14 years old with bruised knees, weak ankles, and a loose core about to compete against the top dance studios in the nation for the first time. I backed further into the curtains, hoping I would dissolve into them or they would swallow me whole. Anything to keep me from getting on that stage. Straighten the legs, tighten the core, point the feet, chin up, shoulders down. I'd done this routine a million times now, but suddenly my mind was as blank as an unwritten essay, and I couldn't remember what came after the pirouette batma sequence. Are you ready? A petite black-haired woman with chunky diamond earrings, Miss Tina asked, while passing out pixie sticks to each of us. She's a firm believer in those last-minute pick-me-ups. No, my anxiety screamed. but of course, I just gave a tight-lipped smile and nodded along with the rest of my team. You guys have worked so hard for this. Just go out there and have fun, she said embracing us close enough that I could smell the blend of jasmine and vanilla on her neck. The stage lights faded, and a rush of puffed, flushed cheek performers filed off stage. That's our cue. Suddenly, I felt a rush of adrenaline coursing through my veins, and I stood up a little taller. Ten years of dance lessons just to prepare me for this competition. I can't back out now. I can do this. Entry number 189. The uproar of applause echoing from the audience drowned out the announcer's voice. I took a deep breath here goes nothing. As soon as my bare feet came in contact with the glossed Marley floor, all my fears were left backstage. When I was on stage, I didn't care if four judges were marking all my imperfections with with red pens or silently judging me from their stiff straight back chairs. I just allowed myself to fall in love with the moment and savor those two minutes of magic. I can never quite express the feeling I had walking out on that stage, despite all the fears and doubts I had. But afterwards, I felt proud. I felt confident. I felt alive. That was great. Yeah, I love that story. So um,
2: had you ever felt like that before other dance competitions or was this one just super high stakes?
1: Well, this was actually my first competition ever. So um I didn't really have anything else to compare it to. And for that reason, like I was just more nervous. I didn't really know what to expect because it was so new for me. But, like I wanted to do it my whole life and then when I got there I was like, oh my gosh, this is so intense. Like I don't think I'm ready for this. How long had you been dancing like before this? So I started dancing when I was three and I was 14 here. So (laughs) yeah, I have been dancing for a while. Just kind of, I don't know, preparing myself for this. And yeah, it was a super cool moment. Like I will always remember that day. Did you have other dance comps after that? Yes. So we have like four or five a season. So
0: I got lots of practice after (laughs) the first one and it definitely gets easier for sure. Did you feel like being with a team and like having your friends like made overcoming that easier or more difficult? Um, I definitely think it was easier. It was super nice to have
1: like all of their support. And uh, it was nice because when I was on stage, like the judges weren't the only ones looking at me. They were looking at them, too. So and, you know, if I ever forgot what I was doing, I could just look around and see what everyone else was doing. And yeah, so it was nice to have their support and go out there all together. So when you say
2: it got easier, like at the dance competitions after that, you were just, did you manage to get out of your own head a little bit?
1: Yes, I definitely did. I just reminded myself, like, okay, you've done this before. You know what you're doing. It just gets easier every time. And also, like, in the rare occasion where one of us did make a mistake, like, I knew that my team and my instructors wouldn't hold it against me. So I could just go out there and have fun, and whatever happens, happens.
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of things like that get easier over time. I kind of have a story about that, too.
1: Here's Rachel Blood and her story called One More Time.
2: The drums were so loud. Standing in the doorway of the music wing of Farmington High School, sleeves of my black pullover tugged over my hands, I watched wide-eyed. As a red-haired junior in a lime-green snapback played a snare drum faster than anyone's hand should be able to move. Nope, I thought. Nope, 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 I can't do that. I can't do this abort mission. I was 14, one of the new recruits auditioning for the drumline, and I was not a hardcore band kid. I hadn't succumbed to that quite yet. A family friend had convinced me to show up. Bass drums lined the left side of the room, snares in the center, tenors along the right. There were so many people, all older than me, all taller than me, all more talented than me, and mostly guys. Why did I think I, a shy 8th grade girl with tiny hands and a weak core, could do this? I made my way through that first pre-audition drum camp with shaky hands and a fragile smile, and then I went home and cried. I can't, I told my mom through tears. I have to quit. I'm not good enough. You are good enough, she promised, and she asked me to try one more time. To step outside the very, very small circle I called my comfort zone and just do something new. Fine. Flash forward four years. I'm a senior now, 18, with plans for college in my back pocket and three seasons of marching under my belt. I'm the one messing around on the snare in the middle of the room. I'm the one cracking smiles at the freshman girl hovering in the doorway. Hey, I say, pocketing my sticks. What's your name? Allison, she says. It's not quite the same. She's outgoing, not at all shy, and there are a lot more girls in the room than there were when I was in her shoes. But I see her eyes dart around the room, scanning for that same familiarity, that sense of place, of grounding. Nice to meet you, I say. Ready to drum? She fits right in, and I think she's handling this better than I did. She's bantering with the basses, cracking jokes, practicing hard, but two rehearsals later, Allison leaves rehearsal with quivering lips and tired eyes. She wants to quit, one of the other freshmen says as he leaves with a pointed glance in my direction. Crap. I plop down on one of the two rolling chairs in the drum room, patting the desk so my co-captain Lucas can sit. He shrugs off his tenors, runs a hand through his short brown hair and sighs. Lucas is the kind of guy who you just have to like. He's not loud, but he did wear a sombrero for the first entire week of band camp and has great taste in superhero movies. Talk to her, he says. I scoff. Me? Yes, you. Why not you? Because you know how to convince her, he says. You're good at this kind of thing, Rach. You were her. I sigh. Because he's right. I was her. What if I can't get her to stay, I ask. There it is again, even after four years. That hesitation, that hint of doubt. He just shakes his head at me. You can. Turns out, he was right. I could. I told Allison exactly what I just told you, that I was the girl overwhelmed by the pressure, the music, the people, that I was afraid and uncomfortable and thought I couldn't do it anymore. Why do you want to quit, I ask, not condescending, just curious. It's just too much, she says. The rehearsals, the music, the pressure, I nod. I get that. She looks at me disbelievingly. I know, I say, but remember what it's like. Sorry. I know. I know. But I remember what it's like. Why don't you come to the next rehearsal, and we'll see what we can do better. It was the same thing my mom had said to me all those years ago. Stick around. Stay a while. One more time. And now look, I said, here we are. So Allison stayed, and she's still there today. I stayed, and even though I don't drum much anymore, it's a fundamental part of me. If I hadn't gone back to that rehearsal, I would not be the person I am today. I would still desperately scan for any sign of familiarity upon entering a room. I would still quiver at the thought of being responsible for a group of 20-something people. I would still blush every time someone assumed I played the flute, still be embarrassed by the double-take they would inevitably do when I told them I was a drummer. I would still be that shy 14-year-old girl who thought she could never, ever be the red-haired boy in the green snapback. He doesn't scare me anymore, by the way. He's a great person and a great friend. They all are. And I can now confidently say without the hesitation, without the shaky hands, that so am I.
1: I just love your story so much. Right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah me too. I love how you were able to use your own experience to help someone else. That's mm-hmm. so cool. Yeah full circle. So if someone from your band were to tell this story how do you think they would describe you in it? That's
2: a really hard question. I I mean I don't know. I would hope that they would describe me as someone who they could trust and who overcame their fears. But I mean, in all honesty, I'm not sure I can ever know
0: how they saw me. That totally makes sense. Uh, You talk about doubting yourself in auditioning for band and also the reflection of that in Allison. but are there any other areas in your life where you feel like this same theme has presented itself? Oh, definitely. I think anytime I've auditioned for
2: or joined anything new, I've had that wave of self-doubt, choir, theater. I think Getting into a leadership position with The Clarion was also a big one where I was doubting whether I had what it took to really maintain a publication. But in the end, I think I learned to keep that doubt under control. Not that I necessarily eliminated it, not that it ever really went away, but it doesn't control me anymore, you know? Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Now for the most important question that I know all of our listeners want to know. Oh, no. Do you give drum vibes? (laughs)
2: apparently not because literally the other day we were at a coffee shop in Duluth and I was meeting my roommate's friend and I was like what instrument do you think I played because you were talking about band he looks at me and he goes clarinet Ooh, nope
0: yikes nope clarinet player ooh that's an insult apparently I do
2: not at all give drum vibes
0: I mean that's fair I also wouldn't have guessed the drums if I didn't know you already (laughs) (laughs) so people look at me and think that
2: I'm a clarinet when people look at you What do they see, Morgan Day?
0: Everybody sees an English teacher all the time. Everybody always tells me, Oh my God, you're going to be such a great teacher. Oh my gosh, you're such a teacher. My entire life growing up.
2: So let's hear a little bit more about that with Morgan and her story called 82 Days.
0: I don't know what I'm doing. Honestly, I rarely know what I'm doing, (laughs) but this time I mean it. I don't know. I was the pigtail-wearing 7-year-old coercing the neighborhood kids to suffer through my lessons after school. Cruel of me to force them to play school every afternoon, I know. But they came every day at 4.02 p.m., exactly 12 minutes after the last bell at Victoria Elementary School rang. Just enough time for the seven of us to scooter home and down a strawberry kiwi capri sun before diving into grammar mechanics. Yes, I was a grammar nerd even then. Some things never change. I passed out Dixie cups of goldfish to curb the complaining, but it didn't stop Mason from throwing a fit during the mock spelling bee after getting out on the word balloon, knocking over the whiteboard easel Santa brought me for Christmas 2007 in the process. Gabby couldn't spell inch, and Hanukkah thought milk was spelled with an E. Mason never learned how to spell balloon, but one time he did cover the whiteboard in aqua and neon green Sharpie scribbles. It didn't let him play school with me after that. I've always wanted to be a teacher. Maybe it's because I'm bossy, or maybe it's because I was the gifted kid in school who thrived on academic validation, making school their entire personality, and never considering a life outside of the cinderblock walls of the local public school. I don't know. Maybe it was the easel. The power went to my head early. Thanks, Santa. Either way, teaching has always been it for me. In third grade, I decided I wanted to be a better teacher than Mrs. Carroll. She made me wear a dunce cap. One minute, I was explaining to Rachel Meyer why Julia is hands down the best American girl doll of all time. And the next, I found myself wearing the white paper cone of shame, crying on the maple wooden stool in the front left corner of the classroom. In seventh grade, I decided I wanted to never teach poetry, ever. I don't know why we have to learn about iambic pentameter. I don't know why some poems don't rhyme. I don't know why that raven only says nevermore. But I do know that Edgar Allan Poe and his creepy bird can suck it. In 10th grade, I decided I wanted to be just like Dr. Benson, who, sporting a white lab coat, starts each class period with a terrible biology pun, never forgets a birthday, and uses his passion for science to excite his students. I don't know much about the skeletal system, osmosis, or why leafy plants are green, but I do know that I want my passion for English to inspire my students the way Dr. Benson inspired me. In 10th grade, I also decided I wanted to steal Miss Gosen's job. She didn't like teaching, and never failed to tell us that. The following year, she quit to become a real estate agent. Props to her for pursuing her passion, I guess, but is anybody really passionate about selling houses? I don't know. My freshman year of college, I decided I wanted to teach 6th grade after practicum placement at Anoka Middle School for the Arts. I don't know, maybe it was a silent ball loving inner child of mine, but I thrived in that environment. Sophomore year, I decided I definitely did not want to teach 7th grade after co-teaching a sex education unit. I'm still not sure why it was the English language arts teacher's responsibility, but I'm never doing that again. Junior year, I had my heart set on teaching 12th grade, the 17 year olds, the soon to be adults, the almost graduates. I desired the raw honesty of post-graduation conversations, the fear and excitement surrounding what's next. Senior year, an almost graduate myself, licensure exams and student teaching complete, English education degree nearly secured, I decided that I don't know if I wanna be a teacher anymore. I don't know how or when it happened. I don't know why. I just know that I don't know where I'm going anymore. What are your post-graduation plans? Where do you want to live? What do you want to do? Have you started applying for jobs? What's next for you? For the first time since my seven-year-old pigtail days when I first decided I wanted to be a teacher, I don't feel confident in my answer. Maybe it's the online school burnout, dreams of grad school in London, or the Peace Corps. Maybe it's having to live according to a bell how much I love my publishing internship or my inability to wake up before 9 a.m. I don't know. For the first time, all I can say is that I just don't know. But I have 82 days to figure it out. Wow, I love how real
1: you were in that story and how you were okay at admitting that you don't know everything,
2: Yeah. How is the pressure of graduation being so soon and like 82 days affecting the decision that you make?
0: It's definitely (laughs) a lot. And it's making me want to just like pick something and settle instead of really taking the time to decide and like process and figure out what I want to do. I was talking to my roommate the other day and I was like going through everything that I've been thinking about and like explaining all my options. And she was like, well, you need to pick soon, Morgan. Like it's coming up. Um, and I was like, well, yeah, but what do you want to do? And she goes, Morgan, I'm 19. I don't need to know yet. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. You don't. And I do. And (laughs) ah, like, like I'm 21. I'm almost 22. I have 82 days. And the, just the number and the countdown is really getting to me and adding, adding to that pressure for sure. So why English?
1: Why was that what you thought you wanted to do?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I grew up, as like the book nerd. So I think it really stemmed from that and from it being the thing that I'm most excited about and most passionate about. And therefore the thing that I'm best at like talking about and like sharing with others, Um, like my own passion and excitement is what then makes students excited. And like English has just always been, always been the thing that I've loved the most.
2: Yeah. And that translates into a lot of different careers. So it makes sense
0: that you're so torn Yeah, Mm -hmm. a lot of options, which is really cool, but
2: kind of scary. But it sounds like you're maybe learning to live with that doubt and accept that it's okay to not know everything sometimes. Definitely. What I I want to know is what what kind of teacher made you wear a dunce cap? (laughs) Did nobody else have to wear a dunce cap? Like, did you tell anyone? What? No, I never told anybody.
0: So only my class knew. I feel like that's really problematic. It was so sad. I just sat and like, I just sobbed. And I wasn't allowed to like have my back face the class. Like I had to face them. So they were all just staring at me while I sat with this cone on my head. Um, She said she wanted to make an example of me because even back then. (laughs) Even back then, I was dramatic, Um, and so she thought that I would like it because she thought that I would think it was fun (laughs) to be the center of attention, when in reality, the teacher's pet in me was dying and was so sad.
2: Oh. But. Well, if you do
0: decide to be a teacher, I'm sure you'll never make your students wear a dance cap. (laughs) Most definitely. I will avoid it at all costs. So, what have we learned today? Oh,
2: a lot. I think. From Kylie's story about overcoming doubt to mine about kind of learning to live with it and grow with it. And then yours about maybe recognizing that doubt is always going to be a part of our lives and that it's really okay. We learned that Rachel does not give drum vibes. I don't.
0: <laughs> I don't. I learned that I'm not the only one who panics at wrong way signs. Yes. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: And that everybody struggles with
1: doubt in one way or another. And in maybe they still are. Maybe they did in the past. like, And that is okay. Everybody has doubt. It's yeah. a part
2: of life. And I mean, maybe we'll never know why. Is it really necessary? Is it like, does it stimulate progress? Does it stunt progress? I don't know if we'll ever actually know for sure. But I think that sometimes it's really good for everybody to hear that other people also experienced out. For sure. We want to thank some people for helping us out on this Modern Story podcast at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota.
1: Thanks to Nick Swedland and Alyssa Tay for building the podcast studio
0: and giving us access to it. Thanks to the writers who inspired our stories. And we should thank each other for our edits. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um,
1: Look for the next episode of Modern Story Podcast. And lastly, go tell your mother about Modern Story. Go tell your roommate. Your dog. Your middle school crush. Your academic rival. Your sister's cousin's goldfish.
0: Literally anyone
1: who will listen. That's all we have for you on this episode of Modern Story Podcast. Stay tuned for some stories about life-changing moments in episode 4.